reading today from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so we want you also to excel in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter, I'm giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something, now finish doing it, so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our Maker and Redeemer. Amen. We've been reading from Paul's second letter to Corinthians a number of weeks in a row now. You may have noticed. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians is, I want to say, passionately herky-jerky in the way that its passions vacillate from thanking to admonishing, from encouraging to lecturing, from spiritual ecstasy to spiritual agony, and from boldly proclaiming the gospel to vigorously defending himself against those who challenge his credentials to be preaching it at all. Paul, of course, had started the church in Corinth, but the relationship between the congregation and their founding pastor had deteriorated after Paul had left and moved on to another call because other leaders who had followed him had been very critical, not only of Paul's authority, his authority, but also his theology and also his spirituality. And now the church was divided between camps over a number of issues, some of them social, some of them theological, and people being people, and sinners being people. Some of the issues were just plain petty. More than one pastor or deacon I'm sure can tell you from experience about divisions that emerged after we had left a call and moved on. It's very painful. First of all, because these are people you had grown to love and still do. It's painful too because there's not much you can do from afar. And of course, there are also professional and ethical boundaries that you have to respect regarding things you can do at all. Those boundary lines being drawn in different places back in Paul's pre-denominational days, Paul from afar found it appropriate to write a pastoral letter to the folks he had pastored. And that letter is called 1 Corinthians. We're glad he wrote it. That said, 2 Corinthians reveals that after they had received the first letter, the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians worsened. 
he writes, refers to a painful visit that he had made to Corinth. And he says that he's quite sure that a, a, another visit would just make matters worse. And so he wrote another letter, which we do not have, but which he refers to in 2 Corinthians as a letter of tears, which he says he regretted sending as soon as he sent it. But then he heard back from Titus, who had delivered that letter to Corinth, and told him that while his letter had created grief in Corinth, it was good grief. It was holy and godly grief because when it always it led to repentance. And of course, when Paul's doing the, the, the preaching, repentance always leads home to grace. And so in chapter 7, Paul says that he found comfort in Titus's report. Which takes us to chapter 8, where Paul, in kind of herky-jerky, corner-turning kind of fashion, says it's now time to collect the offering. Specifically, Paul asks them to contribute toward an offering for the mother church in Jerusalem, whose leaders and members were going through some very hard times, due in large part to very anti-Christian uh, attitudes in both religion and politics back in Jerusalem. It's an offering that he had been collecting around wherever he went that apparently he had referred to the Corinthians, told them about it a year ago, and they apparently had said they would, they would commit to it. They signed on. Now it's worth noting that Paul is asking Gentile Christians in Greece to support Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Which is to say he's asking Christians from one country and culture and race to support Christians of another country and culture and race. Which is to say, what he does not say is, let them take care of their own and you take care of your own. Which is to say, says Paul, that there are no borders in Christ's church. For we are all Christ's own. And the fact is that right now, Christ's own in Jerusalem couldn't take care of themselves, couldn't take care of their own. I, of course, think about that when I think of the refugees streaming from the south to our country's southern border, because I've been to Latin America a few times. I have a fairly educated guess that somewhere upwards of three-quarters of those folks are Christians, who, if mo many, if not most cases, are fleeing in desperation with their families, or in even more desperation, are sending their children without them because they can't take care of their own. you can make a donation to Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services through Gloria Day. Paul then reminds the Christians that they had committed to this offering, the Corinthians, for this offering for the Christians in Jerusalem who couldn't take care of their own. But like I said, then came the troubles to Corinth. And what proved to be true then is the same thing that proves to be true now, and that is that where there is conflict in the church, giving suffers every single time. And so now a year had passed and they weren't following through. They had approved the budget, but they weren't, their giving was lagging behind. They had filled out and completed pledge cards, but they hadn't filled out and completed any checks. So in chapter eight, feeling now that maybe he and the repentant Corinthians were back in good graces, Paul returns to the subject of the offering by turning to what 
turns into, if you keep reading, it turns into a two-chapter long stewardship sermon, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and it's a darn good stewardship sermon, in my opinion, one of the best in Scripture in terms of laying out the basic foundations of Christian theology of stewardship, which most of us know is a topic way broader than money, but in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul, in this case, mostly, pretty much specifically, is talking about stewardship and money. Now I am, and it's not even November. What is up with this? It begins in the verses right before the ones we read today. With an intro, which I think shows that Pastor Paul uh, has been around a block or three. I mean, this isn't his first stewardship Sunday. Because he begins by saying, let me tell you how generously the Macedonians have responded to this. Sounds like Pastor Rogers kicking off a synod or church-wide appeal and saying to folks at Gloria Day, you know, the folks at Zion took this offering last week, and I just want to say, wow. <laughs> Interestingly, powerfully, Paul says the Macedonians responded tremendously generously, even though they themselves were going through terribly hard times of their own. Here are Paul's words. During severe affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity, for they voluntarily gave according to their means, even beyond their means, begging us, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry. And then, not merely as we expected, first they gave themselves to the Lord, and then they gave themselves to us. Stewardship chair people, this is good solid stuff, Greg. I, take note. This is stewardship solid food. These are, these are meaty bites. These are vitamin-filled chews. Like, for example, chew on this. When the Bible talks about stewardship, it doesn't ever say, okay, now if everybody does the same thing, by each of us giving $500, then we'll, then we'll get this done. No. When the Bible talks about stewardship, it says if everybody does the same thing by each of us doing what we can, according to what we have, then we'll get this done. Another meaty bite. The most generous people you will ever find are often people who have the least, not the most. And this has proven true in my experience. My dear mother-in-law, Grandma Jean, in the last years of her life was the patron saint of that truth as are so many people I've met when visiting churches in Africa and Central America. We had literally next to nothing, but were nevertheless not just generous, but joyfully so. The Macedonians, says Paul, going through their own very hard times, begged him to let them enjoy the privilege of giving for others. I think of people in Tanzania who welcomed us to their homes and fed us feasts, and they were overjoyed to do so, even though I am sure that in many cases they went without a lot for themselves so that they could do what they did for us, which they did not grudgingly do, but did absolutely joyfully, because of course, as Paul also mentions, the best and most faithful stewards of all don't, first of all, give their offering to the church. First of all, they give their hearts to the Lord in thanksgiving for all that he has given for them. And then gratefully, joyfully, they would do whatever it is they have been given to offer for the sake of the will of the Lord being served in their lives and in their church. Which, 
is the context for our text for the day, where we heard Paul begin by saying, now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so now we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. Here's another meaty bite from this stewardship buffet, which gets even tastier when you realize that the word that is translated here as excel can also be translated as overflow, which is a word that reminds us that stewardship at its best isn't something we do. Stewardship is best, rather something we, that God, God has done, as, as everything God has done for us, the love God has poured into us, just, just we almost can't help it. It just bubbles up from us to be God's love, God's care for others. And that's joyful. The joy of giving is what led someone to observe that so he said, I don't remember who it was, I think it was a he, he said, uh, <clears throat> people say give till it hurts. I say give till it feels good. Joyful giving. Paul continues, I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. It's not a command, he says, but it's the truth. Faith and love that are genuine, are generous. And Paul does compare them to others. You should see what the folks of Zion have done, he says. But that's not his main point. It's just a diving board that he jumps off of to take a deep dive into his main point. That main point being remember the generosity of what Jesus has done. Or in Paul's own words, for you know the generous act. By the way, the word generous act, the Greek word there is the very same word that most often in Scripture is translated as grace. Which reminds us that grace is unconditional love wrapped in generosity. You know the generous act, the grace, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Paul earlier had said that before the Macedonians gave their checks to him, they had given their hearts to the Lord. Reminding us that God's access to, God's access to our billfolds is very much related to God's access to our hearts. But now he takes a dive deeper into the heart of the steward with a reminder that the Lord we give our hearts and our resources to is the Lord who on the cross gave his absolute everything for us first. Why do biblically based stewards give whatever they give? Because they worship the Lord who gave the all. And in this case, all means literally all that he gave. Paul continues, in this manner, I'm giving some advice. It's appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. Now finish doing it so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Wow, twice again he reminds us. Apparently this is important because this is the second and third time he has already said it in just these few verses that giving doesn't mean you give beyond your means to give what you don't have. You give according to your means from what you do have. For, in other words, as he concludes this section, but there's a whole chapter and a half of stewardship sermon. Go home and read it. <clears throat> but for today he ends by saying this. I do not mean 
that there should be relief for others and pressure on you. But it's a question of fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance, one day, might be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, the one who had little did not have too little. The goal for a biblical steward is not to give all that you have until finally you are the one who is impoverished and in need. Biblical stewards, when Paul is doing the defining, do not take a vow of poverty. They take a vow of generosity. The issue, he says, is a matter of what he calls fair balance, which is not, in, in Paul's way of thinking, some kind of a communal system where everybody has exactly the same amount of wealth. That's not the case at all. Fair balance, rather, Paul says, means that those who have much do not have too much, and therefore those who, don't, who have little do not have too little. <clears throat> Humanity, unfortunately, <clears throat> pardon me, having the hearts that we have, have created and now live in a world in which the gap between the too muches and the too littles continues to widen. As documented by a study I saw this week, which says that the 20, and this, try to, try to grasp this, the 26 richest people in the world <clears throat> have as much wealth between them as the poorest 3.5 billion people in the world have between them. Our world has too much of both too much and too little. We who are gathered here, of course, are neither the 26 nor the 3.5 billion, which can leave that disparity seeming irrelevant, um, seeming other than us, which can then lead us to judge the 26 and pity the 3.5 billion, which really doesn't accomplish anything at all. But I mean, what are we supposed to do with some numbers that big and that stark? Well, says Paul, what you can do is remember that we are members of Christ's church, graced oh so beyond the riches of the 26, with the riches of the kingdom of heaven graced upon us through the unmatchable generosity of the one who did give his all to win us all and to win our all. And remembering that, says Paul, taking a vow not of poverty but of generosity, what we can do, what we can all do, what we are called to do, is what we can. And doing so together, do you know what we can do? By grace, by God, we can, we do make a difference. A difference for good. Some of which good stewards discover is for the good of our own hearts. Amen. <clears throat>